What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 154 as we chat with conversion copywriter Hana Shamji about how she became a copywriter, the best way to get good voice of customer data, how to conduct a great interview, her role at Copy Hackers, and how psychology makes her a better copywriter. Welcome. Hey, Hannah. Thank you. Hey, guys. All right, Hannah. So this has been this conversation has been a long time coming. We've had to reschedule a couple of times. But we're really excited to chat with you and really dig into some of your processes around research um, and experiences. But before we do that, let's kick it off with your story. How did you become a copywriter and researcher? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, my story is kind of meandering, as I feel a lot of folks um, are. I, uh, I have a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in public health, and jumped into um, public health policy and research. So pretty heavy in the academic side of research and kind of government policy development pretty boring words uh, to most folks, myself included. Um, and I think it was about like five-ish years ago that I, maybe four years ago, and I just kind of pumped the brakes, looked at the clock. It was like 10.08, I remember the time exactly, and decided I was just going to quit. Um, so handed in my uh, resignation the next day, and had zero idea of what I was going to do. And I didn't even really think about clearly planning that before. Um, so it was a, cute, a few hops before I found copywriting. Um, I had my own jewelry business. I did affiliate marketing, um, a t-shirt business, and kind of just hopped around. Um, and I started a counseling training program um, which was a three-year program. I just uh, graduated from that last year. And it was on that path that um, I've always liked writing, enjoyed writing, and came across one of Copy Hacker's blogs. I think it's one, um, I think it's written by Sam Woods. And it's talking about like the theory of copywriters towards therapists and that blend, which was, you know, exactly the line I was interested in. Um, so that kind of pulled me into into the copywriting realm and very quickly afterwards I joined uh, the mastermind Joanna's um, copywriter mastermind so that was maybe like a month turnaround there from wow copywriting exists to um, signing up for um, for that program and that was a, a like a year-long stint um, so I just kind of was like eyeballs deep in learning copywriting um, and had awesome uh, experience working like interacting with Joanna and kind of learning from her from the get-go um, so that was kind of the first foray there and um, more recently into research um, that is something that I would say is maybe even like six to eight months old in terms of conversion research um, I'd kind of been hopping around with copywriting trying to find my niche and listening a bunch to your guys' podcast, um, just sort of figuring out what uh, clicked. 
And a few copywriters asked me if um, I would do research for them. And that kind of stemmed out of them knowing my counseling and psychology background. Um, and it kind of just happened organically that I fell into the research side and the customer interviews specifically. It just seemed like a really um, natural fit. Um, and here we are. Yeah. Wow. There's a ton of things that we can ask about uh, based out of your story. But first of all, I'm amazed at how quickly you went from finding out about copywriting to jumping right into it and investing in that way. I mean, the the mastermind was not an inexpensive program. So um, why do you think that you were able to make that jump so quickly? Was it because of all of the things that you've tried and your background in psychology or something else? I would have to say, I mean, this is probably a, more of a testament um, to sales copy and Joanna as a copywriter than anything else. Um, I think the marriage of the psychology with um, copywriting was just so appealing to me. And I thought, why not out of the gate start um, with an, a training and an, a course that I knew would equip me? Um, well, you know, why kind of tinker around with something I was less sure about or smaller potatoes? Um, I had done by that point a lot of like reading books and um, combing through blog posts. I'm pretty quick to act and I'll absorb a lot of information if I'm really into something. Um, so for me, it just kind of made good business sense um, to try and invest in one thing that I felt confident in from the get-go um, and just get that ongoing support so that I had something and it wasn't just like diving in and then pulling out and kind of having to sink or swim. I, I had that continuity. So that for me was really powerful. Mind you, it was it was a, not a, a small investment, but an investment nonetheless. Hannah, can you take us back five years to that night at 10.08 p.m. when you're sitting at your computer and you resigned from your job? I just want to know, you know, what led up to that? And, you know, that's a, that's a quite a big change. Um, so what was going on through your mind? Was it just like you were done and you were ready or, you know, what, what happens in that moment at 10.08? Yeah. Um, it was, uh, a, a very kind of visceral memory there. Um, I had just moved downtown with my husband and we were talking a lot about starting, our own business and kind of getting out of the nine to five grind. Um, and the more we talked about it, the more clarity I had into the way I was spending my hours um, just on any given day. And it was so excruciating. I just, the kind of sheer meaninglessness of what I felt the work I was doing was, especially in a government um, organization, there's a lot of hierarchy, a lot of politics, and you tend to have a giant gap between what you do and the actual output and results, um, which after a while, depending on where you are on that ladder, is a challenge. Um, and I, I just wanted this kind of ownership of my own um, thing. You know, I didn't really know what that would be at the time. Uh, I tend to fly by the seat of my pants when I am uh, inspired. Um, so it, it kind of just, and, and it wasn't something like my, my parents still bug me about the fact that this was like not communicated. It was like, I just made this decision executed and it was one of those, um, ask for permission after, or ask for forgiveness, not permission type thing. 
Um, so they were definitely having grown up in a school in an environment where education was super important um, and kind of thoughtful, really mindful decisions, getting a secure job. This definitely went uh, against the grain. So um, it's one of those like thrills, exciting, and then um, a bit of panic mixed in there all at once. What from that experience and looking back, what advice would you give to someone who's making a big career change potentially like that overnight? Um, would you do anything differently or is there anything that you wish you would have had after, you know, at 10 09 when you, after you resigned? Um, I think the my biggest takeaway from that is that it's okay to question assumptions that, and by assumptions, I mean sort of the mainstream that even if you have been raised with a particular mindset or people around you are operating in a certain norm, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be okay for you. And I think that that can feel kind of scary. Um, there could be a lot of instances and there were, was for myself of normalizing something or trying to justify a scenario that I just didn't like. Um, and so questioning assumptions and that being okay, and that there are alternatives um, that, you know, I think it's more about seeing things as I've come to learn as a challenge and less of a problem, less of feeling stuck. I mean, granted, that's like a work in progress, but um, those are kind of the two bigger takeaways that I would offer. So Hannah, as you stepped away from that, then and then stepped into copywriting what did you do what were the first steps to get your business going to find clients and to you know really um step into your new role so by the time when i joined uh the uh copy hackers mastermind um copywriter mastermind i didn't i mean i just had like very little clue and so my goal there was why figure out figure this out on my own when I have the resources to have someone, you know, kind of help me steer the ship. Um, so for me, that felt like a, the better use of my time. And that meant really kind of even interpreting this as, oh, I can have a business around this. Like, what does it mean to have a business? That was a, a learning that um, was all part of joining the mastermind and kind of um, a, a bit of piecemeal. Like there was definitely a lot of um, folks at different levels in that mastermind and which was great for me to learn from and also put me um, on the rope to ask the right questions, ask more questions um, and just kind of really keep digging to figure out what gaps I had so that I could uh, you know fill them and, and kind of get up to speed on like what the heck do I do now type thing. Yeah, I'd love to dig even deeper into that year because, you know, Rob and I were in Joanna's first mastermind, second mastermind, and um, we've benefited from being in the mastermind experience, especially with Joanna. What what were some of the big lessons you learned from working with Joanna over that year? I mean, potentially from your peers too, but really from being um, in the trenches with Joanna in a mastermind, what stood out for you? It's a good question. I think that one of the the bigger pieces that I took away was um, just kind of the way to think about business and even copywriting. This idea of it doesn't need to be 
perfect or complete or solid, that testing is more important than perfecting. Um, and that was something that I really struggled with in the beginning. And um, it took me a while to kind of ramp up. And I wanted that the full-blown clarity and, you know, this great looking website and the experience already in copywriting to know exactly how to say it. And so testing that and kind of stepping outside of um, try and trying to get clients without that backing felt um, like sinking. And so the, the piece that I learned from her was that, or, you know, one of the bigger ones was that it's that, um, it is supposed to feel scary and like you're um, an imposter. And that kind of means you're doing it right. You know, you're, you're heading in the right direction and just sort of focus on iterating and the results um, and feeding that back into your work as opposed to waiting, waiting and kind of culminating something that may or may not uh, float, which I, I mean, that's a lesson that I think I've taken with me. Um, all throughout and it's uh the experience that i had there was just a lot more um practical or a lot more not practical but um hands-on so it wasn't just a hypothetical a moment of inspiration it was like in the weeds of trying to grow um and create my own business that that just became very uh, very apparent so when you talk about it's supposed to you know feel hard to do a lot of the stuff, I think one area where a lot of copywriters struggle and they feel like they are an imposter is when they're doing research. They don't know how to do it right. They don't know the questions to ask. Can we talk a little bit about your research process? This is something that you've really stepped into in the last year or so and have gotten quite a name for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. Research has always been sort of a like blah word um in other circles so it's it's cool to see the response here being different and kind of um also that the the gap between research meeting copy and seeing the output um is much smaller so it it makes the research process a lot more fun um so my process tends to um I initially started focusing a lot more on customer interviews and surveys and kind of collecting voice of customer data. Um, but generally, I, you know, once you figure out what specific, um, what the goal is, then you can figure out research questions and hypotheses. Um, and then that would drive the strategy or the copy. I know that that's like very vague, but that basic premise of goals to questions, to hypotheses is a huge, huge component. Um, if you don't have clear research goals, which are separate to project goals, um, it's very easy to fall off course. Um, and the more clarity you have in the research goals and questions, the more you can start to build out kind of uh, an experiment as opposed to research being, let's find the answer. Um, it's more, let's find what's what are possible answers? And so you're not pigeonholing yourself and using research to kind of push against, like force something that isn't exactly a fit. Um, so always kind of goals, uh, questions and hypotheses for sure. How do you come up with those initial goals and questions to test? Because I feel like you're right, that's step one. And oftentimes we, we miss this step or we don't get it right from the beginning. So how do you work through this initially? 
Yeah. So a lot of it will stem from that conversation with the client or if it's your own business, what's your end goal that's really going to, or goals, that's really going to help you a prioritize, uh, figure out what point of conversion is most important. What output do you want more leads? Do you want more uh, sales? Do you want um, more show ups at uh, a webinar? Whatever that goal is, that's a project goal is going to help you determine um, the research goal. Like what is the information gap that's missing or that I need more of in order to better convert leads or have more signups. And so it really starts with that initial kind of business goal that would then inform um, the, the research goal. And it, it can feel a little nebulous, but if you think of it more in like a chronological, so what is my end goal in the business moving to? What do I need to get there? Uh, what data is missing or what data do I need more of? That, that kind of framework tends to help really uh, prioritize your research efforts. So you're not flailing so that it doesn't feel like, oh, I have to do like interviews and pro- mining product reviews and user tests. You kind of have a bit more of a strategy and a plan and you can start to plot things more uh, sequentially, because you understand what research will be relevant for um, what output. I don't know if that was just like a lot of mumble jumble. I, I hope that made sense. Not not mumble jumble, but you're right. It does sound a little nebulous, uh, you know, when you talk about it. Can we maybe walk through an example of how you would do this with uh, either a, a real life client or maybe a pretend life client? Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's take an instance of a client who wants to have more um, folks sign up for a live demo, say. And that's the main call to action on their homepage, on their website. And they're just not having folks um, sign up. And they want more of that. So we would take a look at, there's a a bit of, um, we would kind of, this would be an audit of what do we know? Um, Do we have information about how many folks are um, like what kind of traffic levels they have, right? So we're looking at kind of a quantitative side. Um, Do we have a sense of what level of conversion they would actually like? So that's all kind of more of a client conversation. But in order to figure that out, in order to figure out how many, um, how to increase that number of signups for a demo, um, would then need to think, okay, well, these are folks who are coming onto the homepage, right? So based on where they're coming from, um, whether it's an ad, a Google ad, or a Facebook ad, um, what information do they know when they land on the site? And then we're looking at, suddenly we've like drilled down from um, into the sales funnel that, hey, this, what is being said on the homepage? Um, that's now our f- actual focus. And so um, when you are looking at, let's say, um, product reviews, or you decide, hey, I want to talk to customers, um, you you can identify that actually there's more importance to talk to leads than customers because you want to identify that point of um, decision-making that happens or doesn't happen. Um, you'd be more interested in running uh, like live user session recordings on your website to see like what messages are people resonating with when they're, are they scrolling down the whole page? Are they skipping through certain messages? Um, 
something like that would be really helpful to help you identify what's working on the page and what isn't. Um, and so the, and, and so something like a survey might also be helpful, but it wouldn't be a customer survey so much as, you know, a, um, like a lead survey. Maybe you start to implement something where someone, um, you can kind of have people sign up to demonstrate an interest, but they might not necessarily sign up for a demo right away. So you've captured their email, um, but they haven't actually signed up. So what what's happening here is instead of it just being like, I just have to interview customers or I just have to interview users, you can have more granularity on what you're asking and at what point you're asking that person uh, for information. So in, in in this is kind of, I don't know if that was like too granular, but hopefully it gives a sense of like, you want to figure out what you're looking at um, and what your data points could be, what would be useful to know at that juncture. And that's really going to give you an insight into what that next research step would be. What type of research would you recommend if you have a client who doesn't have a big list you can survey, or maybe they don't have a ton of traffic going to their website? Uh, Where do you start with... um, I guess you could say a client, yeah, a, a newer client who doesn't have this huge platform you can pull data from. Yeah, so we um, the there's always data hiding somewhere. It just might not be tied to your client yet. Um, so one would be looking at competitors. Um, sometimes even competitor testimonials are really helpful. They give you a sense of what uh, potential leads or customers care about. So I would definitely comb through those um, discussion forums. It might be Reddit. It might be a Facebook group, um, even kind of general topic Facebook group. You really just want, it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to the client yet, um, but those pains and understanding the problems of that audience, um, all of those sources would be helpful. It could be um, Amazon reviews, And there is also um, just kind of setting up opportunities that while you're doing this, you know, parallel research, um, setting up spots that you can collect research for like as their customer base grows. So that might be a survey when leads opt in. Um, It could be a survey on the thank you page, like a one question survey. Um, But just having these areas that, you know, in tandem of you doing this kind of more market research and competitor research, you're still um, creating uh, like points to capture client specific um, insight. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you have favorite uh, interview questions or survey questions that are just always on the survey that you're always asking? Um, So I do have uh, the actual question, no, but I my rule is to always follow up um, that whatever question I ask, I will always ask a secondary question because typically people will give a short ish answer to the first one, um, something that they think they can sort of get away with almost. And it's in the follow up that you tend to glean a lot more um, insight. And I, I will always in like, add in before I ask a follow-up question, I'll repeat back what I've heard to check with them. And that gives them something to respond to um, and and a chance for them to correct me. So it's less um, specific 
uh, questions per se and more of those um, always reflect and always ask a follow-up. You'll be surprised at, um, it might feel redundant and I, I definitely have felt that myself, um, that you're kind of summarizing almost what you're hearing, but it 99% of the time they will um, use that as a segue to keep uh, unpacking that that idea, which is always always great. So I want to ask my own follow up to that. Then can <laughs> can we have an example of how that works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was actually doing an interview um, yesterday, um, and we were trying to unpack um, the decision behind um, sort of his decision in terms of um, becoming a customer and. I I asked a question of um, you know have you looked for other um, other uh, products in the past or in kind of this decision making process were you looking at a bunch of competitors and he responded and the answer was fairly brief um, like a, a bit of a, a yes and you know we found X Y and Z. And so I followed up with, um, you know, what, what exactly were you looking for um, in that search? And what was the criteria that you were looking for um, or you were kind of comparing against? And it is sort of this like, un, it became this unraveling process. So the more I kind of inched towards understanding the um, way he was making that decision, the more he, he would share. Um, one of the things that I find really, really helpful is to actually cultivate this sense of like curiosity. So when I ask a follow-up, I'm not just kind of bluntly asking. Um, sometimes I might ask a follow-up with like, can you say more about that? Um, can you tell me a bit more about this idea? Um, but it, it is this sense of like really helping them like unravel this, uh, this giant sweater um, and, and kind of keep going till you find this nugget that you're looking for. How long are your interviews typically? Uh, no more than 30 minutes. Okay. Um, probably closer to like 20, 25 minutes. Okay. And what else do you think you're doing or do you know you're doing from chatting with other copywriters in your customer interviews that most copywriters aren't doing. And, and you mentioned, you know, the follow-up is huge. So that's part of it. But what else are you doing in those customer interviews that really helps you and is kind of gives you an advantage that we could all pull from you? Um, so one of the things I would say too, is not powering through questions. Um, that is, I'm, I'll definitely have a question list. Um, but I won't necessarily stick to it. It might be something I'll use as a pass to make sure kind of final check. Did I cross off all the things that I wanted to ask? But be okay to let go of the script and actually step into the conversation. Um, so that would be one. And alongside with that is this notion of letting go of your agenda. I find that, um, you know, with copywriting and copywriters and even like with my own business if I'm looking for something specific I tend not to find it and in the process I miss a lot of other um, insights that would be really really useful so p 
putting aside your agenda, kind of taking off that copywriting hat and actually having a conversation uh, with the person with the kind of permission that they might actually not say something that you consider quote unquote useful. If you're able to step into the conversation and just really kind of let go of that agenda, um, most of the time you will not come out empty. But if you are trying to steer it and you're looking for something specific, the danger is that, A, you're not going to get it. You're going to be disappointed. B, the person is going to feel kind of pushed in a particular direction and um, doesn't have the insight that you're looking for. And what would have actually been really useful will have been kind of missed or swept under. Um, So really kind of checking your own assumptions um, and, you know, two cents at the door when you're stepping into that conversation is, is huge. It, it really does work wonders. Um, yeah. So this is probably the opposite of that question. What are the mistakes that we're making as copywriters when we, you know, step into an interview or when we put together a survey? What are the things that we're doing that are really hurting the responses that we're getting? Um, I would say in an interview, um, not asking quote unquote, scary questions. And by scary, I mean, I'm definitely someone who has kind of like thrived on people pleasing for the majority of my life. Um, So asking like appropriate questions or questions that people are excited to answer has always been something I would pride myself on. Um, But the risk here is that folks say something, maybe they use an acronym or they use a term or a turn of phrase that you aren't really clear on and it can feel like I'm I I know myself and other uh, copywriters I've talked to have this kind of like clenching of I want to ask but I don't want to come across as stupid or um, I feel like I should know this because this is going to make me look really bad but asking is really really key Um, And the way that you can do that, the way that you can make it easier for yourself to ask what you would otherwise consider like stupid, and I put that in quotes, question, is at the outset of the conversation, start by saying something like this. Um, I intentionally know very little about uh, your role and your company so that I can ask more objective, nitty gritty Um, possibly like outlandish questions. It, for one, sets the tone and really kind of relaxes things, makes them feel like a casual conversation. And two, it is your permission slip. Um, People tend to laugh and nod and get it. And it gives you license to dig deeper, um, probe a little bit more, and really kind of follow your curiosity, which is another thing I don't see folks do is to actually kind of reflect on what the person is saying in that moment. It can be um, a bit of a balance when you're looking at the clock and, you know, you have all of these questions that you want to go through, but train kind of that curiosity response, your gut response there. And reflecting back what you're hearing is really helpful because it gives them a chance to check what they said is accurate and it gives you a chance to actually digest in the interview what information you received. And as a result of that, you give yourself pause and time to sort of think through and kind of rotate the message in your mind um, and process it in a way that you would be more inclined to come back with a follow-up. 
um, because you've kind of taken that step, like rotated the Rubik's cube and like, oh, okay. Um, so I get that now, but what, what about this piece? Um, and, and so that, that curiosity, uh, piece is a definitely like, it's more of a loose skill, um, or it can feel that way, but it is a, a powerful one to develop even kind of in the, in your day to day. Is there such thing as a bad question? Something that you would never, ever ask? I tend to steer clear of why questions that start with why, but the caveat here is, and, and so the reason that I do that is because why tends to put people on the spot. Um, it implies that there's one particular answer um, and it can kind of create a bit of defensiveness in people. And so especially with a stranger or someone that you haven't met, you want to be more mindful of opening out um, your questions. So you're asking less of, hey, what's this one thing? Figure it out in your head and then spit it out to me. It's more of a, hey, let's actually look at this together. What do you think this could be or what would be the result of that? So I steer clear of why questions, but um, if you have a tone that is, like if you're coming across in a good way, if someone is clearly um, comfortable with you, you have much more liberty to ask kind of daring questions. You know, the smile on your face, the tone in your voice, um, the follow-up that like, I hope it's okay to ask that, or I, I'd like to ask something more probing, would that be okay? All of these are permission slips. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say there's so much such a thing as a bad question, maybe in uh, ill-prepared or not, um, like not a not effective question. Um, and of course, there's like the completely inappropriate, like not relevant for um, and not kind of professional. Um, but otherwise, as, as long as you're kind of staying on topic and focus and is within the realm of what would make sense, given your goal, um, with, with the right tone and intention and giving attention to that person, um, you, you have pretty good license to, to stretch your questions out. Do you find that you try to match the energy level or the tone or even like just the vibe that the other person is like sending across video if you're on video? Um, does that help with the you know, effectiveness of the interview questions and their comfort level? I've, uh, it's funny, I was just reading something the other day that was talking about that kind of mirroring. Um, I myself haven't practiced it. It feels, um, it's not something I feel comfortable doing and it shifts to me, shifts my attention to the wrong thing. The tool that I use is that everybody responds to attention. Everybody wants attention. Attention feels really good and it gives off a particular intention. It makes someone feel like you are actually present in the conversation and not um, reading a script and kind of, you know, following this sort of business process. Um, so more than mirroring, I would have this kind of like stepping into the conversation, being really attuned, um, asking about particular words that they used, following up on those. All of those give someone a sense of security, of safety, um, that you're actually kind of interested in what they're saying. And as a result, they're more likely to um, to open up, even something as small as asking if they have a hard stop at the end of the interview can be really helpful because it lets them know that you are safeguarding their time. Um, and when you get kind of five minutes to mentioning, 
I, I know we're, we're coming um, close to the end of, end of the hour and I want to be mindful of your time, but it, it creates a space where they can trust you. And so as a result, they're less distracted with, you know, what do I have to get to? I need to hop off this call, etc. You can kind of hone their attention in um, by kind of placing a focus on, on them um, and appreciating the fact that like they're giving you their time to chat about something that they probably don't, I mean, definitely don't care as much about um, as you do. So Hannah, one of the things that uh, we hear from copywriters a lot, in fact, I've experienced this in my own business, is that a lot of clients don't want to pay for research. How do you talk about research in a way that clients get excited about giving you money to conduct it? Good question. I think it's a, it has definitely been sort of a tug of war um, in certain scenarios. And, you know, I've talked to other copywriters who've, who felt the same. I think part of this is presenting. Um, so part of the counseling and the psychology pieces, and even in copywriting, talk to people in a way that they care about less what you care about. And so that might mean, um, or should mean presenting research in a way that it is, this is the root of driving results. One, I would make it like a static part of your process. If you're negotiable on something, um, it comes across, right? And and that is kind of a piece then that um, clients respond to as well. Then they sort of identify that, hey, well, here's like a loose, um, a loose tooth here, so I'll just kind of wiggle it and kick it off. Um, but if you have clarity that this actually is a really critical part of the process, um, and instead of it compromising on the output, it would actually, you know, 10x it. If you can kind of stand behind that and communicate it in a way that is more results driven. Uh, so maybe this is sort of presenting past uh, examples of how research has directly impacted your copy um, or directly found its way into your copy. And if that's also something that you are genuinely excited about, you know, not just a kind of false standing behind. Um, so it might be being more um, kind of uh, like having maybe even a pitch deck or making sure your results are always kind of tied to, well, here's the result, but it rests on the principles of research or on this process. Um, I think that that doesn't necessarily, of course, it's, it's not a um, foolproof, but uh, I think that the more that you're willing to have that conversation and the more that you're willing to challenge the client um, if they are, or the lead, if they are hesitant, that in itself demonstrates a level of confidence and, uh, and clarity. Um, and I do think that that, that does measures, um, the confidence in your own process as a real kind of indicator that it is a worthwhile process. And that's not as tangible as like, say this exact line, but I do think it's a very powerful, um, force. Hannah, I have two questions. I'm rolling into one. So, um, how, you know, how do you sort through all the research that you gather from these interviews, you know, survey data, um, mining forums, like it's so much. And I feel like this is a, a part where I tend to get overwhelmed. Uh, so that's the first part. How do you sort through that so you can do your best work? And then also just adding on to that, how do you present and package the research to clients um, after, you know, after you've sold it, after you've done the work, what's the best way to present this to them? So they feel like, wow, this was, this was worth however much I paid for it. 
so in terms of volume of data, totally hear you. It is like a mind explosion when you have a ton to go through. Um, first, keep uh, separate, keep your each research source separate. So if you're looking at interviews, um, keep them on one Excel tab and surveys on another or individual surveys on another. Um, if you're looking at product reviews, that will be a separate tab or a separate sheet. You want to analyze them individually first before you start cross-analyzing. And the way that um, is best to analyze is you're pulling out kind of main buckets of like pains, benefits, objections, um, purchase prompts, or, you know, uh, key decision makers. Um, it could be ROI or results, whatever those headings you identify are. So grabbing the quotes, popping them into those headings, but then going back and starting to um, summarize in like a word or two. So generally I'll have, let's say, 15 interviews that I've done. Um, and I've got a whole bunch of like pain quotes that I pulled out. And having gone through that, I know that there's about like five themes in there. And so beside that pain column, I will add another one that's a summary column. Um, and what that does is you start to build kind of a theme catalog. So I will use that same um, legend for surveys, the way that I'll quote unquote code a survey, looking for these same themes and these same pain points. Um, when you have a lot of data, the power is not just in the qualitative, so looking for sticky copy, but it's also in the quantitative. You actually have more bandwidth and more sample size to figure out or how many times did someone talk about this particular theme, um, which can really feed into building a strong hierarchy of your messages. Um, so I do that kind of quantitative with the qualitative um, for each individual uh, source. And then once I've done that, then I can actually, when I'm crossing the sources, then I'm looking at quantitative. So like, oh, five people talked about how this particular um, you know, the cost of this product in surveys, but we had like 20 people talk about it in um, the product reviews. And now I know that, you know, the priority of this is 25 and I have a quantitative number I can compare um, up with. So this would be like across all of the, the research sources. So it, it can definitely get a lot. Um, clear excels are very important. Um, but keeping the data together, uh, so this one survey together, batch of interviews together, product reviews together, is um, is critical. And it does, you know, something like product reviews, I tend to have a cap. Like if I have a bunch of other data sources and I'm, I'm going to lean less on product reviews. So maybe I would just kind of comb through 50 or 75. But if that's my only source, then... I'll come through 50 or 75 and evaluate if I need more. Um, do I need to kind of sift through how many ever, like 25 more? Um, so it's really kind of juggling what you have to work with. Because uh, sometimes, yeah, like surveys can be intense. Like I'll definitely use algorithms in Excel um, to help with quantifying. But if you can get that message to a quantified space, um, if you're able to kind of create themes and tally them, it really offers a different level of insight than just pulling the uh, the sticky copy, which can be pretty powerful. Is there something else we should be asking about research that we just don't even know to ask because we don't do it well enough 
uh, are there secrets <laughs> that we just don't know? I think that a lot of this is um, one of the things I would say is that it can feel like you're just talking to someone, but there is a significant amount of prep that goes into getting ready for an interview. Um, I will not just write down questions and make sure that I'm doing this in a chronological way, but I'll actually rehearse out loud before, you know, if I have like 10 interviews booked before the first one or whenever else I need to feel comfortable, I'll rehearse like, how am I going to intro this? Um, I will say it out loud like a crazy person, um, just kind of in the room. I will notice my intonation. And if something feels awkward in the way that I'm saying it, I'll say it again. So it feels less awkward. Um, and until, until I feel comfortable with it, I think that coming across as casual and comfortable when you don't feel that way, if interviews are intimidating and uncomfortable takes practice. It is sort of rehearsing the relaxation into your voice. The more that you can do that, the more that energy and intention just trickles into the conversation, you're less distracted by your nerves and getting through all the questions and more focused on what's actually happening in the conversation. So practicing is is huge, rehearsing that out loud, saying it to yourself, um, rejigging the questions. Maybe you prioritize the questions even because you're like, okay, well, this is going to be a half hour conversation. This feels a little too dense. Um, you can make those calls when you give yourself time to process the questions, read through them, think about the flow. Is this organic? Does this feel like a steep turn? Oh, how would I even introduce this topic if it's like completely different? What kind of segues or transitions am I going to use? That practice doesn't need to necessarily take place before every single interview with every single client. You will get better over time. But um, the more that you're able to do that in a customer interview, the more you're able to do it in conversation with a client. When the client pushes back, suddenly you have this whole host of um, experience dealing with like really uncomfortable conversations with a customer um, that you can lean on. The other thing that I would say is that People, uh, copywriters and marketers and folks that I've talked to tend to think that comfort in an interview equals a successful interview. That if I feel like, oh, hey, you know, they were really nice and they were really open, that means it was a successful interview. And that's actually not the case. A lot of uncomfortable conversations where the person will give me, the customer will give short answers um, or is very curt, very blunt, very direct in a way that like kicks up, flares up my people-pleasing self, those actually t- turn out to be really, really powerful. Like I get a lot of insight from those, but you have to be able to kind of stay the course and not bail um, and just kind of count the, the minutes down. So feeling good about the conversation is not necessarily a determinant of the quality Um, of the interview. And hopefully that gives you permission to not dismiss an interview that felt, or, you know, just, oh, I don't know how that went. I don't think they liked me really. Um, Or I don't think they wanted to open up. Those, those do have a lot of opportunity in them. If you can just kind of hold, um, you know, and not attach so much to that, um, that dynamic. Yeah, no, that's that's really great advice because I have been in those conversations where it gets a little awkward and I, I walk away feeling like 
it wasn't as successful because it wasn't comfortable or they didn't give me as much as I wanted. Um, so it's a really great way of looking at it. And Hannah, before we wrap, because we're running out of time, can you just share a little bit with us about where you are today in your business and your career and uh, what you're working on right now before we wrap up this conversation? Most of um, my working hours are at Copy Hackers Agency. I'm head of research there. So uh, eyeballs deep in all things research with the clients, kind of using research to really drive any copy strategy and decisions that we make. Um, and on the side, separate to Copy Hackers Agency, I am, um, it's definitely been on pause the past couple of months as I'm getting my feet wet in the agency, but um, my workshop of customer interviews. So that's something that I um, I had been doing um, prior to, to joining the agency and um, will keep doing. I'm actually working right now on building out a plan to move towards more of a product. I've been doing some coaching, some one-on-one um, and, you know, I was doing more of um, interviews for uh, copywriters as well. But I, I, I do like the appeal and the hands-offness of a product. Um, so that's something I'm actually just, uh, just started recently to work on. So um, my time is kind of split um, between client work, which is great. I definitely always want to have the client work feeding into the product. So I have that now um, with the agency and then um, my own product kind of bubbling up um, on the side. And Hannah, if somebody wants to connect with you or learn more about you, where should they go? Um, my website would be the best place right now. at um, hanashamji.com. That's, uh, that's the best spot for me. I've, I've been sort of MIA on a lot of the social media intentionally, um, which may or may not change. I do have a podcast um, that's been kind of pumped the brakes on for a little bit, but um, that'll be kicking up again soon. But all of that is um, just on my website. All right. Thank you, Hannah, for sharing so many insights about customer interviews and research. Um, there's definitely a lot to talk about and a lot we didn't even cover. So thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This was fun. <laughs> You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.